so one of the question, I guess, about Bitcoin mining as an alternative power projection game, I guess the cleverness aspect comes in with just the operational efficiency of Bitcoin mining and or ASIC chip efficiency? I would actually argue no. And I would argue this is a common misconception. People will will talk like it's more efficient to fight or establish permissionless control over property through Bitcoin because it uses less energy than all the watts of all the people fighting and all the guns going off and bombs going off. And, and while that's true, I don't think that's the source of its competitive advantage, meaning I don't think its operational effectiveness is is the source of its competitive advantage. The operational effectiveness of gunpowder wasn't the source of its competitive advantage. The operational effectiveness of torpedoes, of nukes, weren't their competitive advantage. The competitive advantage instead was because like everyone everyone wants to be more operationally effective no matter what game you're playing, whether it be in business, you want to lower your costs, you want to increase your profits. Like if it's a game that everyone's playing, then that isn't the distinguishing factor between why something takes off and why it doesn't. Is that synonymous with profits or points in a game? It's operational effectiveness term that you're using. Yeah. So I'm using operational effectiveness as distinctly as the opposite of competitive strategy. So the, Mm. so strategy is different because strategy is the creation of a completely new and unique position altogether, or you play a totally different game. Mm. So it's not that Bitcoin is amazing because it's more, it's a more efficient way of generating watts to defend property. It's a big deal because it's a completely different game. They are doing completely different activities than their rivals in, in or the same activities in completely different ways and taking a totally different position. And, and most importantly, strategy and the competitiveness that emerges from strategy is as a result of the trade-offs of the opportunity cost of what you lose. So, so another way of saying it is strategy is what you're choosing not to do. Mm. You're deriving a competitive Mm -hmm. advantage by explicitly making a trade-off and choosing not to do something at the cost of something else. Mm. So I I don't know if that, if, if that makes sense, but like, so there's operational effectiveness improving just your efficiency and trying to squeeze out more margin in your business or, but then there is playing a wholly different game Mm -hmm. altogether. And you, you take a leap because you choose to play a wholly different game. So when the weasels were running around and they decided to start warming their blood, it wasn't operationally effective. It wasn't Mm -hmm. more operationally effective they made a trade-off. All the energy that they're using to warm 
the blood is at the expense of not being able to use that energy for other stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas the dinosaurs are out there receiving their, the warming their blood through freely received energy. Mm-hmm. It was that trade-off that they made that put them in a totally different, unique position. And then by virtue of that unique position, did they end up dominating their competitors? Does that so make the, sense? the strategic adaptation is movement into another competitive niche entirely. Yeah. It's repositioning altogether. It's yeah. making a, an explicit trade-off. And so if you want to like evaluate from, you know, like as an observer, what the strategy of a specific entity competing in any game, whether it be nature or mm-hmm. or or business, you pay attention to what they're not doing to understand mm-hmm. why they have a competitive edge, right? You don't pay attention to what they're more efficient at. You pay mm-hmm. attention to what they're not doing. And in many cases, like we said in the first episode, from the observational perspective, what they're doing, it looks grossly inefficient. It's like, how, how is that even a good idea? It's like an insult to this grand pursuit of operational effectiveness. So, so Napoleon was a great example of this back in the day, all these fights are happening in Europe. The Austrians and the Prussians had focused heavily on operational effectiveness. What's the most efficient means that we can haul ammo, gunpowder, cannons, and position them? And so they would create dedicated supply lines and like these highways, and they would they could very efficiently and quickly move the the you know the supplies that you need forward and backwards through these optimized supply chain channels. Mm -hmm. Napoleon took a wholly different approach. He said, Hey, infantry, you know, instead of using the supply line and having horseback carriages carry all your crap to the front lines, you're going to carry it on your back yourself and you're going to walk and you're going to be slow. And then, you know, instead of having neatly defined mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive organizations like, dedicated cavalry, dedicated infantry, dedicated artillery, and then optimizing. He created the the core system and he created basically a bunch of little baby Napoleons. And the baby Napoleon had their own cavalry, their own artillery, their own infantry. And, and there was a whole bunch of inefficiencies and duplication of effort and it, and it looked compared to what the Austrians and what the Prussians were doing completely operationally ineffective. It's like, you just regressed. <laughs> like, how is this a good idea? And he was criticized a lot, but as we discussed, it's because he took, he took a totally different strategy and what was his strategy? Well, what was he not doing? Mm-hmm. What he wasn't doing is fighting an attrition warfare fair fight anymore. He wasn't doing the classic offense and defense. So if the Austrians and the Prussians and all their infinite efficiency built these really well fortified front lines, Napoleon would just choose not to engage that. Mm -hmm. And he would just walk around it. And you know what's super helpful if you need to maneuver around a front line is if every infantry person is carrying all their crap on their backs and they don't need a road. Mm -hmm. 
is, you know, if you need to be able to surround the Austrians in the Battle of Ulm, or maybe, I can't remember if it was, you know, what, basically Germany, if you need to be able to surround your enemy or play the maneuver warfare game, you need decentralized baby Napoleons with their own cavalry, artillery, and infantry. You need them to be a little bit inefficient, but what you gain in maneuverability is, mm. is worth it. So it, that's just an important thing. It ju- in my opinion, it just so happens that the amount of watts needed to defend Satoshis is significantly more efficient from a watt-to-watt measurement scale than the amount of watts needed to defend land or gold. Mm -hmm. But that's not the source of its competitive advantage, and and we need to just make sure that we uh, understand that. It's not its operational efficiency that's the because it because this this leads to the ESG trap where people are like people act like it's important to reduce the energy footprint of Bitcoin, and that's not true. You do not right. want to reduce the energy efficiency of Bitcoin. Remember, defense. The point of defense is waste. You want it yeah. to be too expensive for your enemy to. Right. And the way to make that more expensive is you use more energy. Like right. if it takes the more energy it takes, the harder it is to countervail the energy producers that are the ones that get to set the state and chain of custody of, of Bitcoin. So, you know, it's a dangerous game because mm-hmm. the most because the most operationally efficient defense strategy is trust. You build right. no right. military and you just trust your neighbor. Right. And so, yeah, it's like, no, no, that's, you know, that's when you're going to get your economists back. <laughs> yeah. And the, I mean, analogy here to Bitcoin slash dollar, the U S dollar is very efficient in terms of it being a single node database, right? You just update it once and you're done versus the Bitcoin database, which is decentralized and everywhere. It takes a lot of energy to harmonize all of those ledgers but the trade-off, there's some trade-off here between, uh, I guess, efficiency and vulnerability or robustness, right? Like the more clearly the U.S. dollar centralized ledger, super efficient, as efficient as it gets, but it's it can be co-opted, right? It's kind of a single point of failure. If you gain control of that single database, well, the game's over. Bitcoin, though, wasting, quote-unquote, wasting a lot of energy, um, decentralizing that ledger gives it all of this robustness to attack, right? You can't, how do you co-opt the Bitcoin network? Well, you have to 51% attack it. And the larger the network, the more energy or the more power is being projected, the harder it is to execute such an attack. So there seems to be the very fundamental trade-off. Yeah, it's- I guess between efficiency and, I don't know the second term, robustness maybe? Uh yeah, uh, I don't know what the term would be. I frame it as proof of stake versus proof of work. Hmm. Maybe this is where we should have that conversation. Why proof of stake will never? Uh, yeah. So, so the point of mining isn't to mint Bitcoin. That's like a common. It's a misnomer because it's called like mining. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so 
people get confused, but the point of mining is to, to make it difficult to have control over writing the ledger. Like you don't want it to be easy to write the ledger because if it's easy to write the ledger, then it's easy to denial of service attack the people who rely on the ledger. Yes. And the, and the point of mining is to create a fair way for people to compete in a lottery to have the privilege of writing the next entry in the ledger. So it's those two things that it's not decentral, it's decentralization of ledger writing power, which secures Bitcoin against denial of service attacks. And so just like, so just like you want to protect against economists, how do you protect against economists from taking the energy inside your membrane? You must impose a cost on them. You must mm-hmm. tilt the calculus of that ROI equation such that it is not an infinite payoff for them mm-hmm. to deny you service from your underlying property. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you must create an ex- it must become expensive for the people, for other people, your the outsiders the enemies that you can't trust, it must be expensive for them to try to change the state and chain of custody of the underlying monetized property, whether it be land, irrigated land or gold, you must impose a cost because if you don't, then obviously they're just going to take it mm-hmm. and they're just going to, and then, okay. So that's what proof of work is. And that's how defense works is you want to impose a cost and in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. that cost is energy. The energy is the cost, the Mm -hmm. cost of producing the energy, the cost of building the infrastructure. It is a massive fixed cost. That's good. That's not inefficient. That's not right. Like, like obviously when humans die, that is not an efficient or cost effective thing. That is pure waste. Mm -hmm. You take a life and you just throw it away. Right. But, but it is necessary in order to preserve, in order to preserve trustlessness, but through imposing a cost on attackers, right? Like, so, so by that same token, it's necessary to, to spill electricity instead Mm. of blood, Mm. right? Like it's necessary to just dump electricity and for no other purpose, but to impose a cost on would-be attackers. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Bitcoin succeeded in that 10 minute war in preventing anyone from denial of service attacking any user on that ledger is proof that the energy wasn't wasted, Mm. right? So, okay, so that's proof of, proof of work. So long as people have the ability to, so long as it's expensive, too cost prohibitive to perform a denial of service attack. And which means you need it, you need to always preserve the ability for users to have the means to impose that cost. Now, so meaning 
you need to be able to countervail the top. Let me put it a different way. If someone 51% attacked the Bitcoin network, it wouldn't be the end of the world because the users would see it and would be able to dump more energy into the system to regain or to take away the attacker's 51%. So that is security. You are securing yourself against an oppressor by always preserving the ability for users to kill the top power projector if one emerges. If the top power projector achieves the 51% attack, you can countervail them. Note, you can do it two ways. It's not just digitally. And this is another reason why there is no substitute for proof of work. So, you know, this is why I started talking about, we need to start thinking about like legitimately thinking about US Stratcom combined force, combined hash force component command. If we, let's say the world is on a Bitcoin standard or at least the United States is, China realized they burnt their ships, they screwed up, they kicked out all their miners. Now they're coming back. And let's say they do a, 51% attack of the network. Maybe they control whatever supply lines or they have some advantage where they can just gain just a lot of hash really fast and kind of surprise us with 51% hash Mm -hmm. to the point where we can't respond with just better hash, at least not immediately. What's the alternative? Right. That's not, let me put it this way. That's not something that a well-placed Tomahawk cruise missile or JDAM can't solve. That's not a problem that traditional power projection can't solve. Or you just go and you cut the power to the Chinese miners, right? And suddenly the balance is restored. And so that's another important point is in proof of work, You can literally see the people who can control the ledger, like that are, you know, writing the ledger. They're giant warehouses of miners. They're, right, they're these these big companies. Mm -hmm. And so you can verify with your own eyeballs that these are separate pools of miners, that they are decentralized. You can actually see it. There's one person running this mining company. There's one a different person running this mining company. There's two different mining companies on two different sides of the planet. You can confirm with your own eyeballs that that is a decentralized ledger writing system. Now let's flip to proof of stake. In proof of stake, we'll, we'll use uh, Ethereum, for example. Ethereum began as proof of work. Ethereum had a pre-mine. Ethereum, Ethereum had investors that were buying Ethereum before it was released to the public. Under a proof of work system, that's not a security flaw. If there's just like one person with a massive, let's be specific. If Joe Lubin has a massive stack of Ethereum, it's okay because his big stack doesn't give him, doesn't prevent him from being impeached. If he, Mm. right, like, first of all, it doesn't buy him any 
ledger writing capability because the only way to write the ledger is through mining. So not through having a fat stack, Mm -hmm. at least not on proof of work. But also, even if he did start his own mining thing, like if, if Mike Saylor started his own mining, his fat stack doesn't give him much of an advantage. And it certainly doesn't prevent him from being countervailed if he abuses his control and ledger writing authority. But in Ethereum, now you, as they pivot to proof of stake, you get into this glaringly obvious security flaw, which I don't understand how people can... Like, I don't understand how this is even a thing that people can yeah. even debate this. Right. Agreed. But, so, okay. So there's a couple of problems. The people with the fattest stack get to write the ledger now. Not only that, they get to validate. They get, they get, to, they get more say voting power on how to validate. But ignoring that, just ledger writing, the top stakers write the ledger. Okay. How do you prove, first of all, how do you prove that all these different staking addresses don't belong to the same person? It's ostensibly decentralized because no single staking address has 51% attack or 51% stake. But how do you prove that 10 different anonymous strings of letters and numbers that represent an address don't belong to the same person? How do you verify that? You don't, you can't. In fact, Joe Lubin is on record before Ethereum is released explaining to whales, would-be whales, like if you want to disguise the amount of Ethereum that you own, they will accommodate you. They will allow you to open multiple different emails, multiple different addresses as an anonymous entity. So they don't even know who these are belonging to so that you can buy up a different a bunch of different Ethereum on multiple different accounts to disguise the fact that you're one person. So they literally accommodated this. Now, again, in proof of work, it's not a big deal because being Ethereum rich doesn't get you any advantage or ledger writing capabilities. But then if you convince all the users that proof of work is bad for the environment and that proof of stake is a viable substitute, you convince them to switch to proof of stake now, Joe Lubin and his buddies have unimpeachable control authority over writing the ledger. And there's no way to countervail them if they decide to abuse that. So that's a it's tyranny. Just, it's proof of state. If you yeah. don't have the ability to countervail, you are not in a trustless, permissionless protocol. You have to trust that Joe Lubin and his friends won't start deliberately withholding valid transactions from the blockchain because they don't agree with you. Mm -hmm. And then you'll talk to Ethereum people and they'll be like, well, the probability of that is really low. Well, probability, like what's the probability that you won't have the ability to countervail the ledger writers in Bitcoin? It's zero, Mm. right? The probability of having unimpeachable power in Bitcoin is zero. And that, and by the way, probability is a reliability metric. It's not a mm-hmm. security metric. And so if you're quoting a reliability metric, you're inherently, you're implicitly indicating you rely, yeah. which is proof that it's not a per, uh, permissionless protocol, that you must trust Joe Lubin and his friends for eternity 
as they're passing down their fat stack from dynasty dynasty down the bloodline Mm -hmm. that they won't choose to abuse that control authority over the ledger. And it's just so obvious. And, and then, and so like, which is in their own self-interest, by the way, this to abuse that power would serve their individual self-interest. So you're trusting someone to act contrary to their individual self-interest. In yeah. The long like run. why would they ever forfeit their unimpeachable control over the ledger? What is right. in it for them? And so you create, like, if you want a stable system, you have to create a system where it, it is safe and secure in spite of the decision-making algorithms of the humans in the loop. And the decision-making algorithms of the human of the loop is simple. I want more money and power. Mm-hmm. So if you, you have to assume that the actors are going to want more money and power, which means, and then you have to design a system that either in spite of that, it doesn't compromise the system or in Bitcoin's case, because of people's greed and right. because of people's, it actually makes the system more secure. Yeah. So um, it's, it's so incredibly obvious that, uh, well, I mean, so like, Again, people accuse me of being a maxi, a Bitcoin maxi. I'm not a Bitcoin maxi. I'm a proof of work maxi. And if Ethereum were to, or any proof of work blockchain, were not to pretend like it's a viable replacement to proof of work, I wouldn't have beef. Mm-hmm. Just call a spade a spade. You mm-hmm. have decentralized the financials of a of a company across, or you haven't even decentralized it. You have you have partitioned the financials of a company across a digitally distributed ledger and you have, you're going to have unimpeachable control authority over it. That's not a centralized system Mm -hmm. or that's not a decentralized system. So just, and I'm okay with that, but just don't, don't lie to people. Don't be blatantly unethical and act like what you're doing is the same as Bitcoin because they are not the same. And they will never be the same. There is no substitute for proof of work. Right. Yeah, no, it's really well said. Um, I appreciate the thorough debunking of proof of stake. And this is not, a lot of people get caught up within the scope of technology. They think, oh, well, you need proof of stake versus proof of work. Not considering, I guess, only looking at the technological scope of the project, not the thermodynamic or Darwinian implications like we're describing here. Um, and with that limited view, you don't, you don't understand reality, frankly. So you need, I guess you could say you need proof of work in Bitcoin as a system to convert anyone's self-interest into everyone's self-interest, right? The, the self-interest of the individual holder is converted into the collective interest of the uh, a more secure and valuable network. Yeah. And just software in general is just hard because it's invisible mm-hmm. and there's no such thing as software failure. Like the, the software does what it's told to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't break. It's like, if you have a catastrophic issue or a security flaw in software or a safety mishap, it's not because the software broke. It's because you designed it wrong. 
So it, software has this enormous complexity over traditional analog systems because it it it's much more complex. It has significantly more states. It's constantly shape shifting as it's running different subroutines. Mm-hmm. It's um, and it's totally invisible. You can't see the difference between different protocols with the exception of the difference between proof of stake and proof of work, because within proof of work, you can literally see the power projectors and know they're decentralized and know you have a mechanism to preserve that decentralization the old fashioned way if you need to. And like, so if you think about like the game theory, you know, like put yourself, so I'm a, I'm a U.S. National Defense Fellow, it's my job to understand the security implications of different technologies. And so obviously, like I'm never going to recommend, like if we're thinking about, you know, adding or adopting a type of cryptocurrency to, to be on a, you know, national treasury or something. Like, obviously, I'm not going to recommend the, the, what will be the proof of stake blockchain that's majority controlled by an anonymous group of invisible people that was founded by a Russian guy and another foreigner. <laughs> like you, that's not like a nation that wants to be, to have sovereign control over their underlying property shouldn't pick a proof of stake system. That's because it's not, you're not going to have sovereignty. You're only going to be able to use that Ethereum insofar as Joe Lubin and his anonymous friends chooses not to denial of service attack you, chooses not to withhold valid transactions from the block. And then even more absurd than that is it's not even a good property because it's debasing. <laughs> and so that's aside from the fact that it's a debasing, uh, that it's an inflationary piece of property that's going to have a higher inflation rate than like gold. And so it's like in every possible way, just doesn't make sense with the exception of improving the operational effectiveness of money transfer beyond the crappy analog version that we have today. But that's not a strategic advantage as we've discussed. That's just, you know, you're better at sending, um, monetized data packets across yeah across space right you yeah more efficiently but you sacrifice its integrity across time and that's the but, same dynamic by the way that's in play with central banking being built on top of gold right gold is good for moving the monetary data packets across time but not so much across space you put the proof of stake central bank network on top of gold and you augment its transactability across space. But as we see with the rapid depreciation of fiat currencies, you clearly give up its integrity across time. Yeah, the easy way to, easy way to think about it is look at a monetary system through the lens of an engineer. People need more engineering in their lives because engineers actually have to learn and respect the law of nature. and the constraints of nature, whether it be on the defense side of Bitcoin, but also on the, let's call it the the property side of Bitcoin too. 
So what is a monetary system from an engineering perspective? Well, it's a, it's a network. It's a common protocol, just like, just like the highways. Common, common wheelbase that the Romans yeah. started, right? The TCPIP. It's just a common network for value storage, value measurement, value transfer. Just like, uh, you know, a meter is a common protocol. We're just going to mm-hmm. choose this length and everyone's just going to agree. So, but what are protocols? Pro- protocols are networks. Okay, so in, an, in a network, you obey Metcalf's law. The more people use a network, the more valuable that network is. So as the number of users of a given protocol increases linearly, the value of that protocol increases exponentially. So if you're an, an engineer and you want to design a good monetary system that is secure, then you need to make sure it doesn't have any glaring design flaws that make it suck as a monetary system. So just like a quick aside, because the story is like, it's like crazy that it even happened. What was it? Worship Vasa. So I think it was Sweden back in 1620s or something like that. It's the age of sail. You have these badass ships, just so cool. Technological marvels of the day. And you you have Sweden, you know, they've got a lot of coastline that they need to protect. So ships are kind of a big deal for their security. They design this immaculate ship, just absolutely beautiful, absolutely fierce, called Vasa. I think that's how it's said. It's still around you can go visit it i'm going i plan on doing that and its design was approved by like the king and it took like three years to build and it was essential for the security of the coastline for this thing to be built and it's just the most amazing story they have a crew of like 150 people and it set sail for the first time ever there's a bunch of people, there's a big crowd, there's music playing. It's like a whole big event. It's a beautiful ship, fierce ship. It sinks in less than a mile. It gets a mile, less than a mile off the coast and it sinks. Why? Because it couldn't float. <laughs> it took three years, approved by the king, essential to national security. Piece of wind hits it, tips it over. Its moment, um, its center of balance was too high. It flips on its side, broadsides, fills with water, sinks. Wow. 0.8 miles, third of the crew killed. Like within the first hour. (laughs) So, So the lesson here is respect the laws of nature. Engineers don't get to pull what economists do, like the modern day economists, the Paul Krugman's or, yeah. They don't get to just blame it on like an engineer. If something breaks, he doesn't get to say, well, it would have worked if, yeah. you know, inertia was different. If, it, yeah. if the, you know, law of angular momentum didn't do this, right? That's what yeah. economists do. It's like, well, it would have worked if excuse, excuse, excuse. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have to respect the law of nature. Engineers do. 
So let's get back to a monetary system. A monetary system has to respect the laws of nature. Monetary, if you want to engineer a good network, one of the what are the things that you have to protect it against? You have to make sure that monetary system can measure value effectively. You have to make sure that it can transfer value effectively. You have to make sure that it can store value effectively. But most importantly, and this is something that I think a lot of people miss, is most importantly, you have to make sure that users actually, that you actually retain users mm-hmm. because Metcalf's law works both ways. Mm-hmm. As the value of a network increases exponentially when users join the network linearly, if you begin to disenfranchise users and piss them off or do other means, then as those users exit, the value of the network decreases exponentially. So the most important thing you can do as an architect of a monetary system is is protect it from sinking. Mm. Understand that you are dealing with a a network that obeys the law of Metcalf's law. And the worst thing you can do is disenfranchise users Mm. and, and motivate them to exit and use a different network. Remember, money can be anything. It doesn't need to be gold. It doesn't need to be, it's a shape-shifting thing. It's not bound by the constraints of mass. If it just so happened that gold emerged as the common monetary network or the foundation of the the modern monetary network because it's good at measuring value, because it's effective at transferring value, because it's good at storing value, all the things that you mentioned earlier and that you're Mm -hmm. way better than me at explaining, but also because one one thing that you, you miss is because its control authority is fair and preserved through the brutality, the brutal meritocracy that is nature and power projection. Meaning, uh, you know, it's no secret that the the most powerful militaries end up being the ones with the most gold, right? Mm. And if anyone becomes oppressive with their control authority over money then users of that monetary system have the freedom to counterfail the control authority and, and take it. Uh Okay. So if you're an engineer and you want to prevent a monetary system from having severe loss of users or having any of these loss events where it can't measure or transfer, transfer or store value, then as an architect, you need to take responsibility of what you can control and prevent that system from arriving at a state where it comp- where it could lead to that loss event. What does that mean? You don't want your, like, you want to make sure that you don't do anything that would piss people off. For example, that you start surveilling them through their monetary mm-hmm. system or that you start, you know, v- denial of service attacking them through sanctions like obviously they're going to exit the the network if you keep on doing that you don't want to debase it because now you can't measure value effectively Mm -hmm. right but there are tensions there so that so so the the point here is the art it's the architect's responsibility to or the engineer's responsibility to um act to do what's in within their control to to prevent a loss event, which means to prevent the monetary system from achieving a hazardous state. And, and so 
like if 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 the architects who have that control choose to then surveil or debase or do all these other things then that's your fault for like that that's the root of the problem right yeah and 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 gold was resilient to that mm-hmm. gold protected people from the inter the financial intermediaries from um letting those intermediaries debase the currency or letting them surveil right but there was fundamental tensions and and the biggest tension that i think contributed to um gold ended up ended up not working as a monetary system or at least the foundation of the current monetary system is simply the fact that it has mass so if mm-hmm. if the value of a network needs more users right like you need to make sure you need to make sure that your monetary systems can scale like as more people are born and a and a, a good monetary system is one that it can accommodate more users so it's one that is scalable mm-hmm. and the problem with any mass based money is is a fundamental tension as you increase the number of users that join this mass-based monetary system, then at the same time, you're pissing off the users that exist because you're debasing them. Does, does that make sense? Like there's a limited amount of gold. It's, it's um, scarcity is what preserves its value storage is what it is what creates its value storage capacity. But but the population of the number of sapiens on the planet over the course of a hundred years increases from one to 8 million, 8 billion people. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a monetary system that can't scale to meet all these new users, then it sucks as a network. It's not a good network because it can't scale up to number of users. So now you're forced to adopt a credit layer or some alternative form of synthetic collateral like these contracts because at least the contracts you know the the paper receipts for gold can scale uh to meet all these new users while the users themselves don't feel like they're being debased when they really are does that make sense yeah somewhat um because if you have a semi-fixed supply asset like gold or money like gold and there's more users coming onto the network and the economy is advancing in theory, the purchasing power of the money would be going up too. Um, but it, yeah, you, I guess you hit some resistance in terms of its circulation because if there's an option like to hold gold and then borrow and spend a fiat, your incentive is to always do that. So absent that option of something like a fiat or, or some other money substitute um this is kind of the problem that a lot of people highlight where they call it the hoarding of gold something like that i'm not i don't know i'm not entirely convinced i feel like maybe you would have slower economic activity as a result of something like that but the trade-off is you get more intelligent allocation of capital because when you're debasing the currency you're you're distorting the price signal and people are just betting on shit that won't work Whereas when you have an undistorted price signal, 
capitals allocated very effectively in in congruence with the configuration of consumer wishes, like what they're buying and selling. So that makes sense. I just wanted to highlight here that you, you mentioned earlier about the engineers really having to conform to nature. I think it was Bacon maybe said something like nature to be commanded must be conformed to something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this includes human nature in the monetary network, because to your point, if you start debasing the currency, I think that's the worst one right there, right? People are trying to hold their value in an asset and then you're just printing it willy nilly and diluting them. You're disenfranchising users and motivating them to exit the network. So you're, as the engineer or the architect, you're acting contrary to human nature. (laughs) You're not conforming to the human nature that wants to preserve wealth across time. Um, And that seems to be the, I mean, that's the history of fiat in a nutshell, right? Inflation disenfranchises users. They're forced to exit typically when the currency collapses. And then we have to start all over again. And we've started all over again, countless, countless times. Yeah. So would that have happened if gold were infinitely divisible and infinitely scalable and could transfer across time and space at the speed of light? Probably not. Because then people wouldn't have custodied it in a central institution. Yeah. It's a massless money. You just custody it yourself. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Yeah. It, so the like, so like, I don't think that central bankers are all evil. Like, I don't think that the Federal Reserve is just like the the root of all evil, and that they're they're terrible. I think that because of the limits of physics pre-Bitcoin, we couldn't architect a system that was resilient to human flaws mm-hmm. or not even human flaws, humans acting rationally. Mm-hmm. Every human is self-interested in improving their wealth. Mm-hmm. But if you have a monetary system where every human, to include the intermediaries, are rationally motivated to increase their personal wealth, then you're going to get 2008. And what, so, and so what I get pissed off at is when people act like there isn't an alternative available anymore, because there clearly is now Mm -hmm. an infinitely scalable and infinitely uh, divisible 
piece of underlying monetizable property that can transfer across the world in time and space instantly and has a trustless control structure over it that preserves the law of nature that mm. the top power projectors get to control its state and chain of custody. Mm. They get to write the ledger. And you always have the ability for users to countervail their control authority if they become abusive with that ledger mm. writing power. So the, a viable alternative exists. So I don't accept the excuse from the, the um, FCIC report on the 2008 financial crisis. They basically blame it all on human error and say, man, if it weren't for the fact that everyone involved in this system is self-interested, it's like, no, it's your fault for designing a system that can't survive people with their rational, right? Like, you know, how many campaign contributions were given to politicians to change the laws that would allow the systemically important financial institution to take 75X leverage Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, it, you know, it, 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 yeah. So I don't accept that excuse. If you watch Vasa sink on the first, within the first mile, it's like you designed a flawed system. Yeah. It's not, uh, you, you design a system that doesn't um, align to, the rule of nature, Bitcoin restores it. And, and, but another problem too is, and this gets to like the security issue. So in security, there's, there's different ways of, uh, we talked about strategy. Now let's talk about security. There's different mental models on what uh, security means and what a secure system is versus a non-secure system. And for the longest time, people frame security as they use this linear causality model, meaning like accidents or security breaches happen because of a linear chain of events. Something breaks that leads to something else breaking that leads to something else breaking. And that's the reason why we have security flaws, linear chain event causality model. But that's not uh, really it doesn't really hold. It's not really an effective security model, a way of viewing security because most of the time in the real world, the things, things are not happening independently. So like linear causality means you have to assume that this security flaw happened independently of another security flaw happened. And so people design systems that have like, interlocks or redundancy thinking that the the reason why security flaws happen is because of a sequential chain of independent events that led to a security breach or a catastrophe. So example, Titanic. Why did Titanic sink? What was the security flaw or the safety flaw that caused the Titanic to sink? Uh, I don't know the specific one. I wasn't iceberg proof. Yeah. So if you, if you view security as a linear causality thing, like as as a linear chain of events, then you might say it was a fluke. It, what are the probability that all these different bad luck things would have just aligned up perfectly to the Mm -hmm. point where it sinks. So for example, um, 
there, you know, there happened to be an iceberg in the way, or for example, that the, you know, different interlocked pieces of the hole happened to fill up with water or happened to flood in just the right way, hit it just the right way. Or what is the probability that it didn't have the lifeboats that it needed? Or what's mm-hmm. the probability that it, uh, the watchman didn't have binoculars? And so, oh man, as a result of these low probability events all adding up together, we get this infinitesimally low probability that the Titanic was sinking. That's why it happened. But that's bullcrap because those were not independent events. The reason why the guy didn't agree to go, the watchman agreed to go on the ship without binoculars, the reason why it didn't have enough lifeboats, the reason why the crew didn't practice escaping the ship, the reason why the captain was trying to set a Atlantic speed record, the reason why he ignored the uh, the warning that there's icebergs in the water, the reason why the dude that you know is supposed to radio was asleep, the reason is because they're all mutu- mutually correlated to the fact that they didn't believe that it could sink, that for mm. the last five years, the White Star Line advertised this thing as an unsinkable ship. So they were all mutually correlated to the fact that none of them thought it could sink. And, and by that reason, those events were not independent. Wow. And that, that happens all the time. Like all the time, people try to design redundancies into things, assuming that the reason why security breaches happen is because of the linear chain of events of independent events. And it never, it's almost never true. So, okay, that doesn't work. So what's another way, uh, another model to approaching security or safety? And I know you're going to appreciate this one. I know you're going to know some flaws with this model. It's called the epistemological model. Mm. Used in um, medicine a lot. Particularly uh, um, the transfer of pandemics, how to protect people against pandemics. So at least in the epistemological model, people understand that the results of security breaches or or crisis or loss events isn't the result of a bunch of independent linearly uh, linear events happening in a sequence. They at least recognize that there is complexity involved, that there's these different Um, variables that interact with each other in some complex way that result in a loss event at an emergent scale. And that that emergence is more than the sum of all the independent variables that contributed to the loss event or the pandemic or whatever you're trying to secure against. Okay. So how do you protect against that? Well, you have to go out and you have to just measure as much as possible. Just take as much data on as much random variables as you possibly can and run the numbers and run the numbers and see if you can back out what those relationships between the variables are that are leading to the emergent crisis at scale. So what are the factors that are that are contributing to this COVID thing, just wrecking people or any other disease, right? 
So it's a little, it's slightly, I guess, more effective than linear causality approach to security. But there's also very glaring flaws with that too that are also present with linear. And that is like, what data are you collecting? And by the way, you're only able to measure the variables that you can measure. That's the big flaw of epistemological approaches is you're only deriving correlations between variables that you can measure, not that might actually be the leading cause of the pandemic or whatever you're trying to protect against. Does that make sense? Yeah, there can be variables that you're just not aware of or that are not that you measurable. literally can't measure yeah, yeah there's there could be leading root cause variables that you cannot measure so your ability to defend against a pandemic or against this or that is only the result of the things that you can measure not right. the result of what might actually be the leading cause of the disaster right and okay. an enemy you cannot see you cannot fight something like that yeah so you get into a problem there and that's where you get like what we've seen with COVID is just the glaring flaws. And I don't have, you know, one political opinion either way, but I do know the flaws of epistemological approaches to security. And the, and the flaw is you're only as effective of what you can measure. And that's only as effective as the data that you're gathering and that's going to be constantly changing. So like the criticism from is like, oh, the, the science changed. What do you know? You know, something. And, and it's like, yeah, it's because, uh, the, you know, the data and what you're collecting and the correlations that you can make between those variables is changing. And what's frustrating is when scientists act like that's what science is, like mm -hmm. because that's quantifiable, that is truth versus not. And it's mm -hmm. like, no, right. you're, you're making very false correlations there, especially when it comes to security, because remember, in security is a totally trans-scientific um, issue. It's beyond what can be quantified. Mm -hmm. It's beyond what can be measured. How do you measure a design flaw? Okay. Also, by the way, a lot of security comes down to frustratingly qualitative variables such as ethics such as mm. morals. So maybe let's assume it is true that you've measured the proper stuff. You happen to have determined the root cause. Is the solution ethical? Mm. That is the trans-scientific question. And so when you're trying to evaluate the security of anything, whether it be a new emerging technology for warfare, whether it be how to defend against a pandemic, whether it be how to prevent a Titanic from sinking, you have to factor in more. You have to look at the systemic structure as a whole and factor in not just probabilities, but also qualitative metrics, ethical concerns, design concerns. Was it ethical for the United States to build the atomic bomb? It's a trans-scientific question. It's posed as if it could be answered bullyingly, like yes or no, but it can't. It depends on your approach to morals, your approach to ethics. This will be true for any technology to include Bitcoin. Is it secure? 
is it ethical? Is it the right thing to do? Is it the wrong thing to do? Mm. No one can purely know. It's an unquantifiable thing. And the role of the scientist and the engineer is to be honest about that and draw, like make it very clear where the, where something stops being science and starts being trans science, mm. like, and, and not to conflate accidentally or unfortunately, deliberately often mm-hmm. the difference between real science, real engineering versus something that's beyond it. And this has dropped us into the domain. I think it was David Hume that posed this question. Like, can you derive an ought from an is, right? Science is telling us what is it's descriptive, but it can't necessarily, you know, in the, in the realm of human action, it cannot be prescriptive necessarily to your point. Like is the nuclear bomb ethical? I don't say like your gut instinct would be no, but then look what it's done. It's created this global peace stalemate. Yeah. We haven't had a peer to peer grand scale war since nukes. Yeah. That presumably led us to Bitcoin, right? Led us to, as you said earlier, DARPA, TCP IP, internet, Bitcoin. Yeah. And it gets even harder when you're trying to predict the future. So like zoom back and consider being like the nuclear scientists in the late 1930s. They know that you can, we can build a bomb. We know, or, you know, now we're in a war. We know there's a war going on. We know we're already carpet bombing civilians and causing mass casualties already. Is it ethical? Is it a good idea for national security to build this thing? They, you cannot use science to sufficiently answer it, even if you did know the future. But at the time, they didn't know. So they didn't know if it would work. They didn't know that after building it, there wouldn't be any more peer-to-peer grand-scale wars anymore. You can't know the future. It's purely just a guess. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at Bitcoin and we try to evaluate from it from it, it from a national security lens, you're running into two issues. One, the difference between strategy and operational effectiveness, right? Effective strategy is something that is the creation of something new and unique. Bitcoin is a wholly new and unique thing. It is a clearly a strategic of strategic significance, right? It's not just an operationally effective, a more operationally effective way of defending property. It's a wholly new, unique form of property itself, a wholly unique form of monetary system. It's a wholly unique form of the power projection game over that property. So my core is, you know, is is a wholly unique form of of warfare. It's non-lethal warfare. Mm. So it's clearly of some strategic significance because of its unique position and all the trade-offs it makes to be Bitcoin. But then to now have to figure out, okay, is this, should we adopt it for security purposes or should we deny it for security purposes or like kick it out? Like that would, that would require you to know the future. That would require you to know the complex emergent properties of its adoption and proliferation across the world in the future, which you can't know. There is no qualitative or scientific Mm -hmm. way of knowing if this is going to be good for us or if it isn't. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's the predicament of understanding the national strategic security implications of Bitcoin is it's a purely, it's not quantifiable thing, especially for not, not these economic uh, economics professors who are demonstrably incapable of building a ship that doesn't sink. Mm-hmm. It's especially not for these monetary system architects who are demonstrably incapable of building a ship that can't sink. It's not for them to say their models won't factor in ethics. Their models won't factor in design flaws. Do they, are they even mm-hmm. aware of, of the design flaws? Do they even know, mm-hmm. understand what Bitcoin, how it's designed at all? Um, and so if you, you have to take a much bigger approach, look at it from a systemic level, factor in all these frustratingly qualitative non-quantitative approaches to security. And the way you do that is through, so the technical term for it is uh, uh, STPA, so system theoretic um, process analysis or STAMP, system theoretic accident modeling and processes. But it's really just everything that we just just described. Mm -hmm. Um, Security or safety events is the result is the responsibility of the architect. You have to create a system. You have to understand the loss events that you want to avoid. You have to understand the state, the hazardous states that could lead to those loss events. You have to understand the control structure over that system, right? There are people in control. There are people that can put it in a hazardous state that could lead to a loss events. And then you have to put in barriers. You have to make it foolproof. Mm-hmm. You have to make it ethic proof. You have to make mm-hmm. it such that the intermediaries that are financially incentivized to be rich won't, through that financial incentive, place the system in a hazardous state that will lead to a loss event, as has happened over and over and over and over again mm-hmm. throughout history with legacy monetary systems. And um, yeah, so it becomes a it becomes a true pickle, and I guess the last thing is the easy way to frame it so that you don't fall in those traps is not to look at Bitcoin like money or a property. It's to look at the shelling points that emerge through uh, power projection over mm-hmm. four billion years, and and understand that like. When, um, you know, when Whitehead, what's his face, Robert Whitehead invented the torpedo and went to the UK Navy and said, hey, I get this new technology that will sink your ships. You should probably like invest in this. The UK is like, why would we invest in this technology that could defeat our, right, like power projection capacity? And so they, in their Silly brains thought, okay, I will obviously not develop this technology. I'll not buy it from you. So what does he do? He goes to another country and they build it, right? And so like, so the shelling point is you don't have an option. You don't get to unsubscribe from the power projection game. You can, right? This happens over and over again. When Mm -hmm. Orban, the engineer, shows up to Constantine and says, I can build you a cannon, he turns it down. Constantine is dead a year later 
or been shooting down the walls. When like, look at every single new power projection technology that happens, you are always free to not adopt that technology, but you're not free. You're not the only person that gets to vote and you don't get to vote not to be eaten by your opponent if they choose to adopt that different power projection technology. And this gets to be a huge concern with Bitcoin because if the world decides to monetize Bitcoin, that's not the architects in charge of the Fed's choice. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what China says. It doesn't matter what the CCP says. They can't prevent other people from adopting that technology. And if other people choose to defend that technology through electricity, through that power projection game, it doesn't matter what you think. It's beyond your control. Right. And so you have to understand these fundamental basic lessons of security and power projection and this game that's being played at scale to really fully appreciate the national strategic impacts of Bitcoin, especially when the United States leading export is defensive property. Right. So if your entire main deal is property defense, then you should consider this technology very seriously that creates a new form of property and a new way of defending it that's highly effective. Right. Because it represents a substitute for your main export. And uh, that's uh, that's pretty important. And Threat yeah. to your business model. Well, but it's twofold. And this, so this is where I get emotional because you have the, your militaries that fight and bleed to establish control structure over property. We, we created the United States. We created this rule of law. We scaled this through the immense sacrifice of 250 years to get to a point where all these other countries who have the same choice to make, whether you subscribe to a power projector where you project power yourself or whether you trust, they like to subscribe to the United States because we're good at this game and they feel safe. Their property is safer with us defending it than with Russia and and China, which is Mm -hmm. why, like, you know, people give us crap that, you know, the United States is the world police. It's like, well, the alternative is you build your own military. And these countries are clearly would prefer to just subscribe to the American military than to build their own. But, and so we build this thing, we build this thing. And then what happens? Not the military causes a security breach. When when 2008 happened, it undermined it, it undermines all of the fighting and all of the power projection capability that we achieved over 250 years, all of the sacrifices that service members took to win wars through history. And you're just gonna crash the monetary system that we fought for because of your greed or because you want to milk out a couple more things. And as soon as that happened, Bitcoin's created. And now people are like, wait, if if the United States can't defend my property or doesn't give me access to my property, 
then why should I like subscribe to their monitors? Subscribe to that. Yeah. So it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. It's you have a choice. And, and so look at El Salvador. El Salvador is creating a new treasury. Well, they didn't create the richer treasury reserve asset, but they're subscribing to Bitcoin as not just the treasury reserve asset, but the defense of that against IMF, against the United States. Hmm. And, and then what's even more interesting is they're creating a sovereign bond that will allow people to pay for them to build their mining infrastructure, their defense infrastructure. So it's basically a, a hash war bond, mm-hmm. right? And so like the, if you, I guess my point is, is if you zoom out and you look at the strategy and the security and everything that's happening at scale, you realize that the significance of Bitcoin is not just its property. The significance of Bitcoin is it creates a replacement for the first time ever to the kinetic power projection game. It is a threat to the United States business model of exporting property defense across the world. And, And we don't have the option, like we can't be like the UK Navy and say, nope, we're not gonna adopt uh, torpedoes because it's a threat to our, you know, you can't be the Constantine and say, we're not gonna adopt cannons because it's a threat to our existing power protection structure. We know exactly how that game plays out. So understand this stuff. It's rookie level stuff. The, yeah. the, the clear response is what you discussed in 2019. Uh, um, I have it printed out. Parallax capital, money, Bitcoin, and time. You get into the game theory of the banks, right? I pass that around to the staff of, of my um, combatant, um, component command. And the, the, the response is buy it now. Mm-hmm. You have to acquire Bitcoin ASAP. This is the future. Like it's not going to replace war, but it's definitely going to be a leading contributor to the industry of property defense in the future. And if you sit there and ignore it because it's not aligned to, you know, it, you know, it, it's like you're clearly making the wrong decision because everyone else is going to adopt it. And that's exactly what we're seeing playing out right now. We mm-hmm. saw China make that mistake. And then six weeks after they finished kicking out the exchanges, Russia is now pivoting. And, right? And so it's like, oh my gosh, it's this is starting. It's we're getting there. It's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Yeah, definitely is. And to your way earlier point, this is happening way faster than I think most of us expected. Um, digital age continues to blow me away with how fast and how, not only how fast it's happening, but it keeps accelerating. It just keeps accelerating, keeps accelerating. Um, well, but like, consider this before we go on, because that's important. Orban, the engineer figured out how to cast iron into cylinders, fill one in with gunpowder, fill the other one with a cannon, offered to build the technology to Constantine. He turned him down. He went to the Ottomans, a 19-year-old kid, and built it within a year. And that was in the 1400s. 
Mm-hmm. So it's actually like we've already seen how quick this game can, how quick the you know the world can go from non-canon warfare to canon right. warfare. So in fact, the proliferation of Bitcoin is actually slower than historical norms if you frame Bitcoin as a new property defense technology because mm. it's proliferated. I mean, I guess you could zoom out and look at the core technologies and gunpowder and stuff. That took a while. But like, I guess my point is it's usually fast. Yeah. Like it's going to be fast. And the people in charge of the United States need to understand the basics of history and the basics of new shelling points in the power projection game. Yes. Yeah, and to you know, we can't look into the future with great clarity, especially the further we look out. But I do think it's useful that looking through the lens of economics, at least directionally, right? It's mm-hmm. like if we figure out a mechanism that can project more joules per second, well, that's something you probably want to look at, right? And there's yeah. other considerations, but it's that's a telling sign, right? This the fact that it's more economic. And you, you know, you either when this new shelling point does emerge, you either adopt it voluntarily, you either buy the torpedoes and equip your Navy with them, or your enemies are going to force it upon you, right? You can't, this is like the safety in quote in his book. He says, there's, it's impossible to insulate yourself from the consequences of someone holding a money harder than yours. Or Ford, if you need a machine and you don't pay for it, you'll pay for it, but you won't have it. Or my version of it is if you need defense and you don't pay for it, you'll pay for it, but you won't have it. Yes, exactly. Bitcoin is both the machine and the new mechanism of defense. You can choose not to pay for it. Just like Constantine didn't pay for cannons and just like the UK or, you know, British Navy didn't pay for torpedoes. They still paid for it, but then they didn't have either. And they paid way more, right? Um, Yeah. In, the, in terms of loss of power and whatnot. And this, you know, we see this play out a lot in, say, s- software or tech in general, right? Industries are being disrupted or threatened by disruption quickly and often, right? Everything moves really fast. What's the tried and true strategy for incumbents? It's buy them, buy them, <laughs> buy equity in the damn disruptor and just it's protect a- yourself. Like, even if it succeeds, you've at least hedged yourself against its success. And when you look at that through a US lens, it's like, okay, we have the global reserve currency. We are in the perfect, pristine, strategic position to yeah. buy it if this is true. And by the way, if it's wrong, then the worst thing that happens is you buy a technology that you don't need. That fails with if money fit- that you can print at infinitum. Yeah. So, so it's so, limited, so, bounded downside and unlimited yes. potential upside. It's like the most obvious strategic decision I've ever seen for a country. Or, or look at the downsides for both sides. If you buy it and you don't need it, and it turns out to be a flop and we're just insane, mm-hmm. then the worst you lose is some printed money. You still mm-hmm. maintain your hegemony. It's not a big deal. But if you choose to not take this, not buy it to protect yourself, then the downside is everything you forfeit the next thousand years. Yeah. And you you are looked back at history as how we look at the Chinese who burnt their merchant fleets or 
how we look at them now <laughs> for kicking out miters. It's like the stupidest mistake po- possible. And mm. it, yeah, it's, uh, I wish I had more time because I started this as a national defense fellow. And at the time it was like, people were like, what you're, you're researching Bitcoin as a national strategic security thing. And they're like, well, it's money. What's the big deal? But in the six months that we've, that I started researching this, it has no kidding become a national strategic conversation, security conversation with mm-hmm. a, with a pending executive order on it. And with, with now emerging, you know, the Russia's out there mm-hmm. starting to incorporate it into their global power projection strategy, possibly. And, and, and so it's like, well, I, this will, this might play out faster than I can even publish my research or even build a, an effective <laughs> convincing um, story for policymakers. That's the whole point of doing this, of building a grounded theory that, that approaches Bitcoin as a, military weapon system is just to, to get it in front of policymakers so that they can understand a different perspective. Because if they don't take this perspective, then they're going to look and to Paul Krugman, who thought that the freaking internet wasn't going to succeed or be more successful than tax, right? Or they're going to look at all these other economists who use qualitative or quantitative metrics yes. to measure risk right. that don't factor in ethical concerns, that don't factor in just blatantly bad design decisions. Yeah. Or, and yeah. and have a proven to, track record of failing to perceive technological disruption, as you just said about Krugman. Like, yeah, not only are they not good at it, but they're provably bad at it. And, and you know what's super frustrating for a military engineer to watch business people and financial people and economic people and politicians talk about national security <laughs> and not include the military engineer, right? Like or the national defense fellow, like that's super frustrating. So, you know, um, I, I appreciate you actually giving me a forum to, I don't know, I don't have the grounded theory formulated yet, but to at least start balancing some ideas off of you uh, and testing these ideas for their empirical validity in, in the public. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been great to have you, Jason. Uh, I think this is a very informed and relevant thesis you're working on. And it, you know, we kind of hit the bottom of it, I think, with just the the strategic decision that's in front of the United States right now. It's like very bounded, limited downside by buying Bitcoin and potentially unlimited, you know, next thousand year kind of upside. So Can I make one more point before we close. Sorry. Yeah, please. I, I just, just thought I, of it. People need to be aware of that. That is such a loud point that we we need to resonate in the US. So if we go back and we only look at Bitcoin through a monetary system lens, so let's just ignore everything I just said, why you don't actually get the choice, that it's a shelling point and you have to make this move. And let's ignore that and just strictly look at Bitcoin as a monetary system as as most people do. The main complaint or concern that I hear for people that are anti-Bitcoin is it represents a massive capital flight risk for the United States dollar system and its hegemony, right? Or any country, right? It allows people to just leave, uh, to exit, to have their capital exit that system altogether. 
And, and let's just assume that's true. Just give them the benefit of the doubt and say that is true. There's two things. First of all, Bitcoin is just a technology. It's just part of the environment. The architects of the monetary system don't have control over Bitcoin, never will. Just like the pilots of an airplane don't have control over the mountain. The mountain mm -hmm. is part of the environment. Mm -hmm. But if you steer your airplane directly at a mountain and you crash it into the mountain, is it the mountain's fault or is it <laughs> the airplane's fault? Right? If you if right. you have an island in the middle of uh, a volcanic island in the middle of the Pacific with a lighthouse on it, beaming in an orange Bitcoin bat signal mm -hmm. around, right? Mm -hmm. Saying, we're here. This is part of the environment now. You should watch out. And you're in your Titanic and you point the Titanic at the island and it crashes into the island. Is it the island's fault? <laughs> right? Okay. And, and then... And then the, the last, so the point is, it's not Bitcoin's fault. It's obviously not Bitcoin's fault. Like mm -hmm. learn basic, you know, reasoning skills, please. <laughs> but, but then another problem, and this is the last one I promise, is now factor in everything that's happening with inflation. And you have this history before Bitcoin, people didn't have the option to exit a monetary system at scale very quickly. There was a marginal cost to exiting. Mm -hmm. You could only flee a monetary system as fast as you could buy other assets. So there was a marginal cost to scale your exit. Mm -hmm. You couldn't leave instantly. But when you start to introduce a new digital monetary system alternative, you create this ability for users to exit the system at scale, in mass, instantaneously, at zero marginal cost, there is nothing. There was, it took me like a day. No, it, it, I, 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 I sold everything that I had and bought Bitcoin. I exited completely once we, we started, once I started seeing that we're pointing directly at the iceberg, right? Where, where our plane is pointing directly at the mountain. And so now everyone can do it at scale. And in the past, when this wasn't an option, the financial intermediaries could get away with locking people's capital into bonds and then doing negative yielding bonds and doing financial oppression techniques to pay off government debt. And people would put up with it because they had to put up with it. They have to suffer through the 10% inflation. Mm -hmm. All right. But we've created a monetary system that gives everyone a portal gun and the ability to just portal out of this burning theater instantly at scale. And so, and it's the first time in history of all monetary systems, of all agrarian societies where this capability is possible. And so, you know, back to the architects of the monetary system, this doubles down on the importance of not doing things to piss off the users. If you surveil them with CBDCs, if you continue to sanction people, if you continue to debase them, if you continue to do all this crap to people who have a portal gun that can exit instantly at zero marginal cost, then what are you thinking? <laughs> what are you thinking? So, so, um, and yeah, that leads I, to exponential collapse of the U S dollar monetary network, as you said earlier, right? Yeah. But, but how do you get around that? How do you prevent that? If you're from the, from the perspective of the financial system architects, <sighs> easy. Right. If, if the if the theater is on fire and people are fleeing 
the, you know, the capital flight is happening, right? And they're fleeing the exit by the opposite end of that exit door. Right. And recapture the capital as it flees from the existing system. Yes. Said differently, you don't have to worry about people fleeing to Bitcoin if you own Bitcoin. Right. And you're the one that can print the money. It's in your strategic best interest to do it anyways. You're the best capable of any country in this freaking world that can do this. The answer is just buy it and recapture the capital. If you're worried about Russia going into a Bitcoin standard, then buy it before they do. Yeah. And if you're the richest country in the world, as we also happen to be, you can front run the entire world. The very act of you moving into this second theater is a huge inducement to everyone else to do the same. You can front run the entire world for money that could last, you know, a thousand plus years. Yeah, look at the people throughout agrarian society who are the first to to accept and use a emerging defense technology, property defense technology. Mm -hmm. They tend to be successful, Mm -hmm. right? History tends to favor those people. So, you know, just... Just open your uh, eyes. (laughs) Yeah, like, you know, understand, like, you know, you watch people playing... Uh, chess at high levels you watch the magnus carlsons right and they can see three moves ahead and they know they're checkmated Mm. and what do they do they reach their hand across the table and they shake the hand of their opponent okay like know when you are in a when you've been checkmated Mm. you know existing monetary system intermediaries and do what's right for this country and position us to win the next thousand years, especially if in case we're wrong, like, especially if there's no downside, if we're wrong, like there's no strategic downside to buying Bitcoin and then Bitcoin not playing out. Right. Yeah. Especially when we can externalize a lot of that inflation. Right, there's four and a half billion dollar users worldwide, 300 million people in the US. It's like you're not even footing the bill if you're wrong, largely. Yeah. And, and thank goodness that at least in the United States, for now, we'll see how this POTUS EO happen, what happens here. But for now, you actually have states that are starting to see it and starting to take the initiative. You have cities that are mm-hmm. starting to add. Bitcoin, you have companies. I think we're going to see some big companies start making major plays. So at least we have freedom people with private who see it, who can maneuver. And so even if the United States government is too polarized or too incapable of making a decisive strategic security play here, I think we'll still be on uh, the, you know, we're definitely going to be in a better position than people like China, at least, Mm. but that, that requires at the very least for us not to ban it or for not to kick out miners, not participate in this game. Like I'm not asking the United States or recommending to the United States to, I mean, I am like, you should buy it. Like, obviously you should buy it if that's what you're concerned about take advantage of your position to buy it. But like at the very least, don't stop us. Mm-hmm. Let us take the risk. Let the, let the sailors buy it up then. And if he's wrong, 
no big deal. If he's right, an American company is, you know, positioned and American citizens and are positioned to be on the positive end of the future. And then using um, our strategic position, we can maybe put some people Mm. in our governance that we, that, you know, posture us for the future better. I have to be careful. Yeah, sure. I, you know, the one last thing I'll say is, all right, given the strategic obviousness and the cost benefit calculus being very much in the favor of the United States, just, just buying the other drum I like to beat is life, liberty, and property. That's what made us so rich, right? And that's what Bitcoin represents, really. It really yeah. is. That's all it is. So it gets. Honor the foundational principles of America and buy the ultimate implementation of life, liberty, and property. Well, it gets back to the, you know, that frustratingly qualitative piece of security, that moral and ethical part. Yes. Let's assume that everything that the intermediaries and politicians that don't like Bitcoin is true. Is it ethical for them to deny us the freedom to volunteer to use right. this network, to, to adopt this as our property? As Americans, is that ethical? Is that moral? Is that what we stand for? Or should we have the freedom to take the risk and the freedom to fail miserably if they think it's true, but also the freedom to succeed if if this is the right path forward? Great place to put a button on it. Jason, thank you so much, man. Really enjoyed it. Um, Do you want to give a quick notice to the audience where they can find out more about you or your work. Yeah. I'm on Twitter at Jason P Lowry, L O W E R Y. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm using my social media as a platform to do my conceptual development and, and, uh, and theory development and test the empirical validity of the concepts that I'm putting into my thesis as per the grounded theory methodology, which really just means I test a bunch of takes and the public tells me where I'm being dumb or where I have a good idea. And then after a year of that, hopefully I'll get to a framework that could help uh, policymakers. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much, dude. Look forward to talking again. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'll see you in the future. <laughs>